Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Dane Anderson. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the latest market dynamics impacting executives and their customers. Today, we're joined by principal analysts Michael O'Grady and Sam Higgins to discuss how automation will impact the future of jobs in the APAC region. Welcome both. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. It's great to be here from me too. So, Michael, we had you on a little earlier this year to talk about the impact of automation on jobs in Europe. So before we dig into our APAC findings, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the trends that are different in these two regions to kind of level set us? Yeah, so we're using the same framework, which is a sort of um, version of Frey and Osborne, but we've, um, we're calibrating it with respect to lots of external data sources as well. Um, but we're, for the first time, we're applying it to the APAC region. Now, the APAC region is very different from Europe, very different from North America for a number of different reasons. One is GDP per worker, GDP per capita is, is very different. Um, and automation is linked to the amount of investment you've got. You might want to invest to um, um, complement a worker, reduce the worker costs or move the worker to a, a more productive task. So automation is good for that, but it's also driven, therefore, by GDP per worker. High GDP per worker means you're more likely to want to do that. So that's one uh, aspect. Um, the uh, the second aspect as well is is just the demographics. Um, we've got um, Japan um, that has an average working age of forty nine, um, and they're going to lose a lot of workers through natural um, retirement over the next twenty years. And we've integrated that into the model. So that's another reason why you might want to automate because if you want to maintain your standard of living your GDP growth and you've got fewer workers, then you, you've got to be more productive uh, and, and automation is, um, is one way to do that. And maybe a third reason as well is just the share of the economy that is dedicated to services or, 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 or in fact to industry compared to services. When we looked at Europe, um, there was about 75 to 80% of the, of the um, GDP was dedicated to services when we look at India, when we look at China, that's not the case. We've got a much stronger industry component. Um, and in fact, just taking it, just taking India, for example, 43 or so percent of their GDP comes from agriculture. Uh, so a lot of these tasks are highly automatable in theory. It doesn't mean we're going to automate, because as I said before, um, you need a, a motivation to automate. You need to be able to automate. Um, and the motivation can be cost savings. Um, and you're not necessarily going to be looking to automate if you've got an excess of low-cost labor, for example. Right. So I would say there's a lot of very interesting work that we did with Sam uh, about you know, triangulating, comparing, contrasting. And I thought that was really uh, useful. Sam, have I covered some of the things we talked about when we created the forecast? Yeah, you have, Michael. And I think you're right. What's What's really interesting is there is a sort of homogenous view in some respects across the European Union. You know, there's a lot of commonality of standards. There's a lot of commonality of how they think about labour, how labour interacts between the different countries within the European Union um, that you don't necessarily see in APAC either. You know, it's uh, we often talk about sort of Asia Pacific is not a country. You know, it's a very diverse region. And as Michael rightly points out, 
we have th- this sort of tale of, of of different perspectives. You know, Australia, as Michael was uh, talking about, the Indian example there being quite heavily agriculture. China, we see a lot of manufacturing. You know, Australia, it, it's nearly 90% of Australia's economy that's actually made up of, of services. So it's a very different story here than it is necessarily in uh, in India and China. And then those demographic elements that Michael spoke about as well become really important. You know, those age uh, uh, those age differences, even things like just where we source labour from. If you think about countries like uh, like Australia, uh, where birth rates aren't necessarily that high, where we don't have a young population not not as not the oldest population in the region by any stretch, but but definitely uh, definitely up there, um, we're very reliant on migration, and so that's been a real challenge uh, economically through through the last two years. And so that's another factor now forcing people to think about, well, how do we close the gap between the work that needs to be done, the labour that we have available uh, at the right age with the right skills. And knowing that APAC is not a country, to your point, Sam, what markets specifically are we referring to in this research? So we're looking at India, China, South Korea, Japan and Australia. So they're the five countries. And in fact, we each country's got a different dynamic. So we've we've integrated those dynamics into the model. Although we've got one model to try and capture it all, each country's got its own set of parameters that drive things. So just coming back on what Sam said, for example, um, we found that 12% of jobs, uh, not counting new jobs that will be created, will be lost in Australia, which is a similar level of job loss to the US. Um, because the US, likewise, like Sam said, has got a high level of services and it's also got a high GDP per capita or GDP per worker. So, so when you've got the same um, um, factors driving uh, a country, then you get the same sort of results. Uh, but Australia, is, it, that's where it ends, really. I think the, the other countries in, in, the, in the five countries we looked at are very different from, from North America or, or, or from Europe. So, Michael and Sam, so Asia Pacific is interesting, right? It's perhaps more diverse than Europe. And a lot has been written about Japan and declining birth rate and, of course, uh, China as well. Uh, whereas in a market like India, you still have strong population growth. So can you talk a little bit about um, what those, how those impacts manifest themselves in our model and what we're predicting? Yeah, well, you know, one of the most astounding facts that came from this was that over the next 20 years, India will have another 160 million workers uh, that they've got to cater for. They've got a very young workforce um, and they're going to get more workers. So uh, they're actually going to overtake China in terms of the number of workers available over in that time period. So then it becomes something quite interesting, right? Um why do you want to automate? What is the purpose of automation? And you know, if you're if you're displacing people who are looking for jobs, then you know maybe that's not going to work, right? Um, um, so that was one of the big things that came out. Uh, you know, you can look at GDP per capita, sure, uh, but you also got to look at the uh, the growth of the working population. And like Sam was saying, Australia will have uh, through. Um, um, you know, people coming from other countries, they're, they're going to have a, a growth in working populations. And so then it becomes a question of um, how do you manage the, the automation when certain working populations are declining, when there's a massive incentive to automate because you've got less workers. 
And then you've got other types of drivers um, uh, when um, you've got a, a, still a big increase in working populations. And actually, th there's one thing that I was very intrigued with in this, and it doesn't necessarily appear in the report. Um, it's that everything is not doesn't always translate into automate an automation solution. Um, so uh, when we look at uh, India, for example, um, India um, are seeing a massive growth in the gig economy, um, and and the, the latest report I saw is that um, maybe one percent of their workforce will be in the gig economy. In by twenty thirty, it might be four percent of the workforce. So. You know, what we're seeing is it's not automation per se, but we're seeing technology change the way people find jobs. Um, and, and the other thing about that is, and it, they are connected, you know, I mean, um, automation is one of the stages in, 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 in technology helping workers. But the gig economy, I, I find fascinating because um, when you become a gig worker, you automatically have access to a contract to benefits, uh, things that maybe aren't available. I mean, in India, for example, the informal economy is is, is huge. It's more than 90% of the workers. Um, and so the gig economy, uh, I know it doesn't quite map onto automation, but I found that absolutely fascinating. I'd add to that, Michael, in, in that I think those sorts of observations are really important for decision makers because we often do tend to focus in on 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 the robot question you know this fundamental existential you know idea that that's been borne out from you know certainly all the science fiction i read as a kid um but the the real message here i think for decision makers is what are the forces that are transforming the labor force what is as you know as the title of our reports suggest what is the future of jobs how do you how do you think about the interplay, as Michael said, between these emerging technologies of AI and automation relative to the changing nature of the workforce, both from a demographic perspective, from the way in which that technology is employed, and even the psychology. You know, the, the other fascinating thing, again, something that isn't in the report, um, but is certainly part of Forrester's broader research thinking, is is the the readiness people have and the readiness of organisations to adopt some of these technologies. And so, um, you know, our work around this idea of a robotics quotient, a, an ability to measure like we do um, IQ and EQ, you know, how prepared people are psychologically and emotionally to participate in these different arrangements, be they using technology and working in the gig environment, as Michael describes, or augmenting what they do on a day-to-day -day basis for, you know, for increased decision-making capacity, for um, for better planning, um, you know, for for uh, a safer environment, um, and you know that, and that's one of the challenges I think certainly facing India. You know, on one hand, they've got this big agricultural base that needs to be reformed for for safety reasons and other. You know uh, other reasons, economic as well, but certainly certainly safety elements. And there's been a lot of pushback on that. So so in some respects, there's a lost opportunity there um, for that part of their economy to, to 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 get benefits from these technologies that might not be really, as Michael said, about directly automating away effort, but using automation in a different way to improve people's overall standards of living uh, or the satisfaction that they might have or their job prospects more broadly. Are there other trends in the region that you're seeing that would impact workers and, and jobs um, 
you know, broader trends that cut across the countries? I think that probably two we picked up on one, one was really around the role of education and, and where that stands in the various economies, um, both from a gender perspective, as well as a, a focus. So, you know, were, are you know, our STEM subjects, for example, you know, being picked up at the rates at which they need to because of the demand that we're going to see in jobs that are harder to automate. Um, so a great example of that is the sort of scientific and, and uh, you know, and technological roles that we know will grow in Australia, but we just don't have the right educational processes in place at the moment to get the number of STEM graduates out the door. Um, and particularly low levels of, uh, of um, women picking uh, STEM subjects in Australia is, an, is another example. So I think there's, there's, a, there's an education piece here. And then the other one, Michael, would be the green economy, which I know you spent a bit of time looking at the impact of that um, as, you know, as a whole new trend, if you like, for, for where demand for jobs might come from. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and one of the things we did this time when we when we updated the forecast is we added new jobs uh, like we did in North America, like we did in Europe, because what we can't do is just estimate the number of jobs that might be at risk from automation or lost to automation without understanding that new jobs will come along. We need to project ourselves into 2030 or 2040 and say these jobs didn't exist before, but they do now. So that's the idea behind it. And we looked at the Climate Paris Agreement. We looked at the South Korea Green New Deal. Um, and we looked at, we, we, we distributed the jobs according to where th those job vacancies are likely to be in the green economy. Now, what we do know from research is that 40% of the renewables, um, solar panels, for example, are made in China. Uh, so Asia is quite a strong um, um, uh, contributor to that job market. Um, we've got an idea of, you know, 30 million or so jobs that will be created from these reports. And so we are um, dishing out uh, where those jobs will be created based on the opportunities. The other thing I would say, um, just, just to add to uh, something that I've been very passionate about for, for quite a number of years, I had the opportunity recently to, to model CO2 emissions to 2050. Um, and I wrote a, I wrote a sort of internal um, um, memorandum on that. And what we found was that the three biggest emitting countries are China, uh, which is about a third of CO2 emissions. Then you've got the US and then you've got India. And over the next 20 years, India will probably overtake the US, right? So there's also a, a sort of closed loop around this as well, is that if, if, if APAC are a key contributor towards renewables, the green economy, then they also it also helps uh, them solve that problem uh, because that is where a lot of the emissions are coming from because of their large populations. So I, I think that's uh, an important point um, to, to, to take on board when we create our forecasts. One other point I would say, um, following this work, I also had a chance to look at AI um, developments across China, India, and various other places. And what I was able to find really was that AI is adopted by large corporations quite freely, but for small and medium corporations, it's a lot harder. So when you look at the job that you might be losing to automation in the future, you, you can't just assume that that's gonna be coming from large corporations. You have to assume that it's across the board. 
And so that's the technological challenge that we've got facing us. Um, and that's why a lot of the numbers that we've come up with are a little bit less than Frey and Osborne's study that they did in the US and, and such, such like, because we're aware of the challenges from, you know, it's not just because something can be automated that you automate it. It, it depends on having uh, an industrial solution that works. Uh, and, and that a lot of the time in the future will depend, as we are a service economy, depend on good AI solutions. And again, not just in large corporations, but in SMEs as well. So I would say so there's some of the, the, the factors that we took in board um, uh, when we were creating the model that were important. So can you talk more specifically about how many jobs in APAC will be lost to automation based on our forecast and which countries and industries will be the most impacted? It's, it's about 4% or so of, of, of the jobs by 2040. And if you compare that to the US, the US is more like 12%. If you compare it to Europe, Europe's more like 9%. Right? So, so you can see straight away this GDP per capita, the, the fact that different drivers happen you know, in APAC compared to North America and Europe. That's an important part. Now, in terms of where it's actually happening, well, I suppose you might be able to guess in a sense because 93% of the population in these five countries comes from China and India. Um, and as China has got a large GDP per capita compared to India, then about 80% actually of the jobs that will be lost will be in China. Um, so 63 million sounds a lot, but it's not really a lot. Um, and uh, because of the size of their workforce, the working populations, the majority of those uh, will be in China. Um, now, when we look at Frey and Osborne, again, going back to the, the model framework, what we find was that um, um, there'll be lower growth um, in jobs that are more automatable. So this is things like industry, construction, agriculture, forestry and fishing. And professional services will see faster growth, for example. So uh, what we, when we apply this logic, um, what we find is industry, agriculture, forestry and fishing, construction, they've got a, a larger automation potential, so they're more likely to lose jobs to automation. Um, so when we put all that together, um, uh, what we uh, find is that industry will be about 15 million of, of the jobs that will be lost. Agriculture will be about 9 million of the jobs that will be lost. Um, professional service will, will, will not see much uh, change. Public uh, administration, again, won't see uh, as big job losses. Uh, so again, it, it's all of the industries that have got a high automation uh, potential. Um, so so, so they're, they're some of the industries. And obviously retail, uh, wholesale, um, 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 uh, some of the tourist industries, uh, the, the, again, there's a high potential to, to automate or to optimise those. Uh, so again, using the Frey and Osborne model, we found that th those would also be uh, heavily impacted. Um, in terms of jobs creation, uh, the, the, so a lot of the green economy, they map onto uh, the construction, uh, buildings, uh, green buildings. Uh, and so we are going to see uh, an increase in that. And obviously, we're going to see an increase in the jobs in the energy sector. Uh, again, not not because they're less automatable. It's just that there are new jobs coming along in the green energy sector that need to be taken on board. There's some interesting impacts as well by proportion at the country level as well, right, Michael? We've 
you know, as you say, the volumes when you count them as individual jobs is quite large when we think of China and India. But as a portion of the labour force, it's Australia and South Korea that are actually going to be impacted the most um, in terms of net job losses, correct? That's right. And for different reasons, actually. So Australia is a bit like the US, uh, high GB per capita, similar types of share from professional services. Um, so again, same logic, same type of result. Uh, South Korea is a little bit different uh, because um, um, the share of its industry that is dedicated, um, of, its, of its gross value added that's dedicated to industry is quite high. It's higher than Japan. And so these are more automatable. These are jobs that are more automatable. And so they're going to lose jobs both because of the demographic issue, unlike Australia, where they're going to gain workers, and they're going to lose jobs as well because the, the types of um, industry that people are going to be working on in, in, in South Korea are more industry-focused. So in other words, susceptible to automation. Um, so, so when you combine that, you, you find that the, the biggest job losses are going to be uh, in, you know, you know, not counting the new jobs created are going to be in Australia, are going to be in, in South Korea, in fact. Yes, indeed. The other thing, Michael, in, in my mind that, you know, we haven't discussed, but I think it would be interesting maybe to, to talk about it today, is just the um, constraint that we've seen in the last sort of six to eight months on the labour markets in Japan and Australia as well, you know, both exhibiting some of the highest labour shortages in the OECD. What, if anything, do you think that will do when we come to look at this forecast again in the next six to eight months? Is is this labour shortage that we see as part of this economic uncertainty and hesitancy in migration and just even inefficiencies in, in migration processes um, between countries at the moment going to make some of these forecasts better or worse in our minds? It means your working population is not going to grow um, and you're still going to have a, a similar high automation potential score. You're still going to lose maybe 12% of jobs lost to automation. Um, and so that then creates an issue, right? So how do you, how do you have to change the way you automate so that you are more harmonious with the workforce maybe um, if, if there's less workers? Uh, a bit like in Japan, right? I mean, in, in Japan, th there's no, you, you can't create efficiencies by recruiting more people because most people in Japan, there's very low unemployment in Japan. And so you can't sort of say, oh, those people who are not working, they can come and work. And then, that'll, you know, th th it's purposely such that the, most of the people, the working populations are actually working. So, so the, the, the labor market in Japan is very tight. Um, and that means if you want to train people in automation, you've got to take it from the existing workforce a lot of the time. And so you've got this whole new migration of the workforce. How do you train them? How do you teach them? How do you create a harmony with, with the robot? Um, how do you make sure that it's not robots against humans and things like that? So I think it is a really interesting question, Matt, uh, Sam, indeed. And Michael and Sam, you know, for the last... 70 years, um, manufacturing for the world has taken place in Asia Pacific, right? It's um, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, China, and that was generally because of lower cost of labor. So as manufacturing increasingly is increasingly automated, does that change? Does the incentive to manufacture in Asia Pacific for the rest of the world diminish? And in fact, do we see more 
automation and manufacturing taking place in source countries in the largest markets? Did we make any assumptions on a shift of that sort? One thing for sure is going to be um, with the trade wars that we're seeing, you're more likely to see a distribution of where you're installing your your workers. So you're not going to be based in one country. You might spread them over multiple countries. I think that is uh, the case. I, I do think politically it's quite nice to be able to say we are repatriating our workers uh, and creating our own industry again. Um, I think there might be a gap between the political niceties of saying that and the reality, however. Um, so at the moment, uh, we've not been able to find any data that was conclusive. And even if you look at you know, pharmaceutical industries and, and things like that, um, which have got a very high uh, price point uh, a lot of the time, you, you don't necessarily see that, you know, that they're going to stop using Asia Pacific as, 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 a, as a country where they manufacture the goods. Uh, so, so I think it, it, a lot of it depends. Uh, but at the moment, it's still wait and see, I would say. I think it's interesting the the sort of um, self-sufficiency and sovereign capacity question, I think, comes up in a lot of domains. It comes up in the manufacturing domain. It comes up in, you know, cloud computing domains. It comes up in a number of different places. And I do agree with Michael. I think there there is some political mileage to be gained from some of that. I think what is interesting in that question, Dane, is um, whether there is a shift in um, the perception of that Asia-Pacific has of itself in regards to its role in the overall global economy um, and its role amongst each other. So, you know, we mentioned at the top of the podcast that, you know, we don't think of Asia-Pacific as a country, but increasingly what we're seeing is behaviours within the region that do mimic some of what we see in modern Europe. So if we think of the the, the recent regional economic cooperation partnership that's been signed uh, across the region, you know, if we, if we look at the use of things like central um, bank digital currencies to try and reduce the amount of friction in, in trade, there's some other interesting factors, you know, maybe beyond just where the manufacturing happens and more about whether Asia Pacific is stepping up um, in a way that many people predicted at the turn of the last century to make its mark on the global stage economically, uh, socially, and, and presumably in some elements politically. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting in your answers, as I thought more about it, is that um, the question assumes a Western-based um, dominance, right? In fact, for many markets, Asia-Pacific will be the largest market. And therefore, it will make sense for this to be a key source of manufacturing. So already today, China is the biggest auto market in the world. It's the biggest energy market in the world. And that's just China, right? So there will still be an incentive here for that manufacturing capacity, um, even if it, if it, you know, more of it redistributes to Europe or, or uh, North America. But yeah, so I think uh, we made a, a wise choice not to, to make uh, uh, too bold of a choice on the assumption. Right, because um, that example I just gave is why we don't do that because <laughs> it assumes a certain type of uh, stasis and conditions which we can't necessarily predict to be the case in 20 years from now. So knowing that we're in the thick of planning season, I assume that data of this ilk is a really powerful tool as an input into 
executive planning and, and planning for, um, you know, teams and your workforce. Can you leave us with maybe a, a nugget, a, a piece of guidance that you you give clients as they take a look at this data in the context of their their own situation? So, Jen, you're right. This this while this is sort of macroeconomic in the way it's presented, you know, the intention with these forecasts over the many years we've been doing them and the the great evolution that's come through through Michael's continued work in this space is to be able to then map these changes onto individual industries, individual workforces, and ultimately individual organizations so that we can start to do that preparation from a skills perspective, from a structural perspective, and not find ourselves caught short like many of us have been recently in regards to, you know, the availability or not of of labor. And, you know, and to also put a bit of reality around, you know, what is actually possible and what's really happening with automation. So to to Michael's point earlier, to remove some of the fear and uncertainty and doubt that can be created by these conversations that are, are typically one-sided around the loss of jobs. When, as Michael rightly put it, there is a, a deficit, but also a dividend uh, through automation strategies and organisations need to understand both sides of that equation as they plan out their workforce and adoption of these technologies. And so that's really how we expect people to use it is, is bring it, bring it home, bring it down into your workforce planning, put it alongside those other planning activities. As you said, at this time of year, great time to think about it uh, and just plan that out. Typically workforce planning will occur with a view of one, two, five years, years out. We're obviously going a bit further with our forecasts. We want to be able to see what that looks like at a longer term, but that's, that's, that would be my recommendation. Yep, and then I would follow that up as well. I think you automate to save costs or you automate to compensate for workers that um, a, a, a declining workforce um, um, or you don't automate if you've got an excess of, of, of people wanting to find jobs, right? So it's about balancing uh, what needs to be done in the future with the trends we're seeing over the next 20 years. Um, and, and so this provides you a, a, a really good insight into what those trends might look like. I mean, if you've got, you know, 35% of your workforce, you know, um, retiring over the next 20 years, then you need to seriously think about automation. You need to seriously think about how this can or needs to become an essential part of your planning process. And you also need to understand which types of industries, which types of jobs uh, are, are, are more likely to be automated and what? how do you start doing that? Um, what types of solutions are out there? It, it's not something for 20 years planning, it's something for now because these things are, as you can see in, in, in the changes to, to the forecast, these things are happening quite quickly. So I would say understand why you need to automate and take good time to do it um, and, and, and do it well, I would say. Great. Thank you both for joining us today. It was great. Thank you, Jen. Thank you both. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or drop us a note at podcast at Thanks for listening.